Well, as uh, Doug said, and as you all know, we've been in this series on giving and generosity and stewardship and what does all that mean? And man, I have just loved the stories. I think the fear going into a series like this is that people would feel guilty or weird or there would be defensive spirits. And, and we are so grateful to hear how many of you are just opening yourselves up and saying, God's doing a new work and listen to this story. And these, we talk about stories inspiring more stories. We're seeing that happen in big and small ways. And we're just loving that. And uh, so really encouraged by, by what's uh, been going on in this series that we've been having. As you know, two weeks ago, we looked at the, uh, the story, the kingdom story that Jesus tells about the parable of the talents, the story of the talents. And uh, at the end of the last gathering, if you missed out, you missed out on a good one because we gave away several hundred dollars to you all and uh, said, uh, give it away. The only rules we have are, it's not for you. You're to give it away, uh, add to it whatever amount you want, and then just come back and tell us the story of what you did with the money. And so we're going to be doing that uh, in two weeks. So two weeks from today, if you got that envelope and you've been thinking through or praying through or maybe already gave away that money, uh, we just want you to briefly just come up and share that story uh, in two weeks. So we're really excited about this. Um, so we're, we're going to explore this a little bit further, uh, uh, and we're going to look at this idea of stewardship. Now, there's a lot of misunderstandings about what does stewardship mean. And let me just give you a real basic understanding of stewardship. It's as easy as this. Handling something that isn't ours that doesn't belong to us. Handling something that isn't ours that doesn't belong to us. Right? And so, um, you know, we think about this, the true question when it comes to giving in possessions. In fact, if you want to know the difference between how do I honor God with, uh, with money and giving and, and the possessions um, that I have, is, is this question, am I an owner or a steward? Because the truth is, if you're an owner, how you act with, around with your things is going to be completely different than what you do if you're a steward. Now, I'll give you an example. When I was in, in college, um, the first year at Taylor, you're not allowed to have a car. Uh, they want you to be connecting there and not feel tempted to go home every weekend. Well, I was 10 hours away, so that wasn't going to be a problem for me anyway. Uh, I couldn't just go home for the weekend. Um, but I remember wanting to take a girl out on a date and uh, needed a vehicle. So I asked an upperclassman who lived on my, my, uh, my floor. Uh, my wing. I said, would you be willing to lend me your car? Um, and he said, yeah, yeah, sure. I said, this is the, yeah, yeah, no problem. And it wasn't a very fancy car, but uh, I wanted to, you know, make sure that I handled it right. You know, this is a big responsibility. Someone's given me their car to use for the night. So beforehand, I remember, uh, you know, taking it and getting it washed. You know, I, I went to the car wash. Uh, I filled up the gas uh, in the tank. Uh, it was kind of not a dirty backseat, but there were crumbs and things. So I, I went and vacuumed it out. Uh, and I realized that it was later that it was less about the fact that I was trying to impress a girl. I couldn't really impress her with Wes's car. <laughs> but it was remembering this wasn't mine. And I remember thinking as I'm vacuuming out and washing, I'm not sure the last time I vacuumed out or washed my own car. <laughs> and I think that's a very important uh, principle for us to understand that when you, when you have borrowed something from someone else, you do what? You take care of it better than oftentimes what you take care of your own things. Imagine if we understand ourselves not as owners, but as stewards of God's things. How would that change how you deal with what God has entrusted to you? If I think I'm an owner of my car, and I've been in some of your cars, and you've been in mine, and it's, 
You know, you got a Wendy's cup on the floor and some McDonald's wrappers and, right, some, some old things in the back that probably haven't gone out for three months. But if I'm borrowing someone else's car, I'm taking care of it to a level that I don't when I own something. Are you an owner? Are you a steward? And when you answer that question with your possessions, your bank accounts, your credit cards, and your checkbook, it'll determine how you spend your money. Let me say it this way, more bluntly. Owner or steward, you show me your bank account, your credit card statements, and your checkbook, and I'll show you your answer. You show those to me, I'll tell you your answer. And you could do the same with me. If I show them to you, you'll be able to tell me if I'm an owner or a steward. Now, you remember this diagram that we looked at at the last gathering um, that many of you said, I finally get it. Now it makes sense. Because if we believe that we are the owner of everything that we have, then don't tell me what to do. This is mine, and I'm going to hold it with a uh, white knuckle grip. This is mine. If I'm the obligated owner, I may say, yeah, I think I'm supposed to give something. I mean, it's kind of a nice thing to do. And so I, I'm still in control of my stuff, but I still feel, it's not really excitement, but I feel like I probably should do that. That's what a good American does. If I'm a kind person, yeah, the American Red Cross, you know, to my church, I'll give a little bit, right? The obedient owner, where we say, yeah, okay, we get this idea of tithing, which we looked at two weeks ago. Okay, God, you get 10%, but really the whole rest of it, that's mine. I'll do with it what I want. So I'll, I'll do the bare minimum, give God what he wants, and the rest of it, don't tell me what to do with my money. I'm going to do what I want. But as we learned two weeks ago, that it's actually the blue circle that is most important in honoring God because it's the only one that helps us realize the difference between being an owner and a steward. This is where we become stewards, where we realize the car isn't ours and we take great care of it because it doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to me. Now, this was kind of cool. Ben Pitson uh, helped me notice this. And I, you know, two weeks ago, I said, hey, if we're going to be blue circle people, the only way we do that is we realize, and I just, you guys remember, I said, oh, look, it's a black circle. Like, we come to the communion table. Uh, ben reminded me right after the benediction, he's like, you know there's a big giant blue circle on the floor of the gym, right? I was like, oh. So I'm grateful he pointed that out just a few minutes too late. But yeah, we, we are... <laughs> Imagine if every time you came to the communion table, you realized you just stepped into a blue circle. That we come to acknowledge this is not our world. This is God's world. This is not my stuff. This is God's stuff who lovingly and graciously decided to entrust his things to me. It's his car that I take care of, not mine. That we step into the blue circle. You know, the enemy of stewardship is believing that we are owners. The enemy of stewardship is believing that we are owners. Now, I'm not sure how many of you were able to listen to the podcast that I recommended in the the weekly email. Some of you get a chance to to do that this week? Okay, please do me a favor. Uh, I'm just going to whet your appetite. I sent it in the weekly email. Um, Here's the premise. Two Harvard, uh, two Christian guys in their 20s are making more money they could ever dream of right out of school. Uh, they go to Harvard Business School in order to make some money, more money than they're already making. They go to get their MBA so they can double the amount that they're making, <laughs> uh, which is more money than most of us will ever make in our lifetimes. Um, and they take a class and they accidentally, they have to do a book report and they do a book report 
on, and the title of the book was Why You Don't Have to Tithe. And they thought, great, man, I've been tithing most of my life. This is going to free me up. But they didn't realize what they're saying is the, the author is saying, you don't have to be limited to only giving a tithe. <laughs> so it really was like, oh, no. So they accidentally come into this book report that they have to do on what, what does this guy, and then it opened it up for them, and they began to explore what does the whole Bible have to say about money. And it took them on this big MBA project at Harvard about trying to figure out what does the Bible have to say about money? And it actually absolutely changed their world. Changed their world completely. And if you haven't had a chance, please listen to the podcast while you're washing dishes or you're in the car or on the way to work or whatever it is. I think you're going to find it fascinating, um, the, the amazing story in that, in that interview. But in it, one of them said this. And, and he was talking about the blue circle. He said, realizing I had to go from thinking it was all mine to realizing it was all God's. And he asked this great question. He said, if all, of I, if all I have belongs to God, then the question is not how much should I give? The question is then how much should I keep? I was mowing the lawn. I literally stopped the mower. It was like, Wow. That's a paradigm shift because if God owns everything and he loves us and he takes care of us, then it isn't the 10%. Oh, what does God demand? Oh, hey, he wants 10%. But an owner says that, but, but over here, a steward is one that says, God, it's all yours. So you need to help me in great wisdom, figure out what I should keep, what I should keep. I want to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 12. Normally what we do is we look at a passage. We're actually going to look at three different passages in the same chapter here. Because one of the things that we learn about Luke, who's the author of this book, who also wrote the book of Acts. Now, Luke is a physician. He is the author here. And one of the things that, uh, some of the highlights that Luke um, wants the reader of his letter to notice uh, of his book. A couple of things. Again, he's a doctor, so he's going to highlight lots of healings. There's lots of healings. Um, those in the medical field love the book of Luke because it's like, oh, yeah, totally. Oh, here's it again. He highlights that. He highlights the poor. He cares a great deal about the poor. And Luke talks a lot about money and possessions. If you just look at it through the lens of money and possessions, Luke's talking about it all the time. And in this chapter, we're not going to read all of it. Um, there are six thought divisions throughout. And right in the middle of those six thought divisions, we're going to look at three of those thoughts that Luke, these categories that Luke has. So um, we're going to be in Luke 12, and we're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to kind of pause throughout here. So one of the things that Luke does here is he highlights another kingdom story that Jesus tells, starting in verse 13. He said, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? I think he was like, man, like, sir. But in my mind, I'm thinking like, man, who appointed me to be judge or arbiter between you, between you? And then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. 
Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Holy cow. (laughs) Again, just so we looked at two weeks ago with the parable of the talents, the response, it's really brash. It's a bit strong, is it not? Someone's asking Jesus to be their personal financial advisor, um, which Jesus doesn't take the bait on that. However, this was pretty common for people to ask rabbis to handle disputes, especially inheritance disputes. This wouldn't be out of the ordinary to ask a rabbi, what should we do here? Tell us what to do. And Jesus uses it as a teachable moment. He says, I'm not really supposed to be doing this, but oh yeah, while we're here, let me tell you a story. He tells him this story. And despite what the marketing agencies will tell you, Jesus wants us to know your worth and your identity is not wrapped up into how much you get. That is one of the main marketing messages. That your worth is measured in how much you get. And oh yeah, by the way, the goal is to make you feel dissatisfied by the end of this 30 second commercial to convince you, you don't have enough. Dissatisfaction is the number one success factor in marketing. And this is one of the main elements of the hope that we have in the resurrection, that you are not defined by what you do or how well you do it or what you own. You are defined by who you are and who you belong to. That's why the empty tomb gives us hope. You do not need to live in the slavery that says that you have to have stuff to have worth. Having stuff equals having worth in our culture. And Jesus says the kingdom is different. It is not who you are. Don't run after these things. This parable is small, but it's really powerful. And you can see here, Jesus is talking about greed. Greed occurs when we value stuff over people. When you want to think, am I being greedy or are those people being greedy? Am I putting stuff over people? It will always be present when there's greed. And Jesus said that his father will say to this man, storing up more and more and more, you fool, you saved it all up. You've been saving it up without knowing that it's actually going to go to somebody else. He forgot that he was not an owner, but that he was a steward. All right? Now let's look at this next little one here. I want us to see the pieces together. Rather than just a little story we pull up, I want, us to, I want you to see what Luke's doing here because he wants us to notice something. Then he gets to this second um, section here in verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or about your body or what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, and do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, do you notice from the the story of the rich fool that we just looked at, and then what Jesus says here, which most of us know the Matthew account in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, this is Matthew's rendition of what he heard Jesus say. But do you notice that both the story and what Jesus says about not worrying, talk about a particular building. Did you catch the pattern? What does is, what is the, what is the rich fool rip down to build bigger ones? A barn. What does it say about the raven? They have no barn. It uses the same word, barn. It says one guy has barns. And he rips down perfectly good barns to build bigger barns. Then he says, the raven doesn't have any barns. And he said, I take care of them, don't I? And then Jesus uses this tool like a good teacher. He's doing a comparison here. The ravens are taken care of. You, of course you're going to be cared for. If I care for the ravens and the lilies of the field, this is Jesus' tool. How much more? Well, I care for you because your worth is infinitely more than them. If this is how they're cared for, how much more will I care for you? That comparison, he wants us to go, you're right. Wow. I don't have to worry. So if the first one is about greed, now Jesus is addressing fear. One of the enemies of generosity and good stewardship is greed, but that's not the primary enemy. The primary enemy of generosity is fear. Will I have enough? Now, some of you have met my brother, Alan, and his wife, Julie. They have four kids. Um, here's a, a, Carter and I went on a trip there, um, I guess this was last year. Um, so the two biological uh, children, my niece and nephew, are on my lap. And they have two Ethiopian uh, adopted children that are their biological siblings. But uh, Betty um, and then Manny. Manny's over here on the, on the left. And uh, they're even bigger now and more mature. And they're just wonderful. We, we're going to spend some time with them next month when we're out in Phoenix visiting my parents. And we can't wait. Carter and Bennett are just so thrilled and elated to spend time with their cousins. When they adopted Betty and Manny, I think, I think Betty was five and Manny was two from Ethiopia, orphans. Um, their father had been murdered and their mother was dying of AIDS. And the week before she died, my brother and Julie, his wife, were over there with the adoption agency. And they had an extra day and they decided to just take a little van to this remote village, not knowing the language and holding a picture up of a woman and saying, have you seen her? And they kept pointing, and they found this grass hut and found this woman who was Betty and Manny's parents, uh, mom. And they met her, and she passed away within a week. It's an amazing story of Betty and Manny 
But because the father had been murdered and, and mom had been um, so sick with AIDS, they had to be sent, Betty and Manny had to be sent to an orphanage for the last uh, year or so. Now, in the orphanage, it's not like the orphanage today uh, that we would think of. Um, there's hardly any food in Ethiopia, and uh, the little amount that they were served uh, had to last them all day. And so what would happen is uh, they were biologically hardwired into their brain to be fearful about food. Um, one of the things they found, and when Betty and Manny came over, they didn't know any English. Now they know English, and Betty loves Justin Bieber, and, you know, she's just fully integrated and assimilated, don't worry. But they didn't know any English when they came over. And one of the things is they had to just act out and pantomime to them about certain things and trying to get them to adjust to a new world, a new language, new parents. I mean, it was just a real struggle. One of the things they found with, with Manny when he was two is when he'd sit down to eat, especially cereal in the morning, he would, he would eat it and he'd have a bowl, but he would have a white knuckle grip around the box of cereal. And they said, no, 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 like, you, you just put it on the table. And they tried to pull it away. He'd pull it back and he would just continue to eat. And then they'd go in his room and they would find that there would be like extra pieces of pizza stuffed underneath his bed. He knew that the only way he could survive in the orphanage is by hoarding food. And it's just this really moving thing. Alan and Julie were trying to figure out how in the world do we communicate, Manny, you don't have to worry about this anymore. And so he remembers, my brother remembers taking Manny by the hand and bringing him over to the pantry. And he just opened up the pantry and he just went, all yours, Manny. You don't ever have to grip cereal. You don't ever have to hide food under your bed anymore because we're provided for. We're going to be okay. Now, truthfully, and that was marking for my family. I just feel like, aren't there so many times where God does that with us? Where we become afraid with stuff and we try to grip the cereal box in our lives. And God just patiently brings us over. And he opens up the pantry and he says, I got you. It's covered. You don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to be afraid. Don't worry. If I take care of the ravens and the lilies, I'll take care of you because how much more valuable are you? The truth is that Manny's come a long way, but Manny still has food issues. He's nine years old now. They still occasionally find little extra pieces of food and packs of crackers under his bed. And they keep reminding him, Manny, you don't have to do this. You'll never be without food the rest of your life. I think so much of the time that Jesus has been patient with me to bring me to the pantry and open up and say, Jer, I got you. You don't have to worry. You can trust me. I'm your dad. I'm going to take care of you. And there are times I go, you're right. Yes. And it's been this significant moment. But then there are times I come back and I'm still putting packs of crackers and pizza under my bed in my life. And maybe that's you too, that maybe you feel like there's times where you, you know that there's enough in the pantry, but just in case I'm going to put some food under because I just don't know. I just don't know. But here's the good news. Jesus is telling us here, the pantry's full. 
You don't have to hoard food. You don't have to fight over food anymore. You don't have to grip the cereal box at breakfast. You can relax. You don't have to worry. And then this third section here in, in Matthew 12, or sorry, Luke 12, that uh, Luke wants us to notice is this idea of watchfulness. This is uh, 35. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door to him. It will be good for those servants whose master find them watch, finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve. We'll have him, them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let this house be broken into. You, you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And the Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. And the master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him or at the hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him to the place with the unbelievers. And that servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, from everyone, uh, sorry, but let me back up here, 48. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. We keep bumping into these stories that we would much rather jump over and not really get in the mud puddles and mess around in, right? These are a little uncomfortable. What do you mean cutting them to pieces and beating them with many blows and beating them with a few blows? What, what are we, why is Jesus telling stories that seem to be so harsh? What's behind this? And how does this all connect? Well, it says, if you could boil this parable down into one word, I think it would be stewardship. And part of stewardship is readiness and preparedness. In fact, I think if you could boil down the whole purpose of your life into one word, it would be stewardship. Life is stewardship. If you don't own your life, if you don't own your stuff, then everything you have is stewardship. You will be a steward it's not a question of, am I going to be a steward? It's, am I going to be a wise steward or am I going to be a foolish one? You are a steward. But what kind of steward will you be? And in this parable, Jesus is saying that part of stewardship is readiness. And it says, be ready or watchful. Quite literally, it's gird up your waist, which is kind of funny, right? But if you've got a big robe, a big flowing robe, 
One of the things you got to do is you got to wrap up the bottom and you got to tuck it in your belt. Why? You don't want to be tripping when you got to run and walk around. You don't want to be tripping over that. So you literally gird it up and you tuck it in your belt. Be ready. Be ready to go. And just as we saw in the last gathering, when we looked at the parable of the talents, that few things make the master more angry than foolish unpreparedness. Many times that Jesus calls people fools, it's because of they are being completely unprepared, intentionally unprepared. If the master entrusts us with something, he absolutely expects that we will remember that we are not owners, that we are stewards. And therefore, he expects us to handle it wisely as if the car doesn't belong to us. And of the three vignettes that we've looked at here that Luke wrote about in chapter 12, here's how I'd summarize them. The first one, don't be foolish with the possessions entrusted to you. Second, don't worry because God is the owner, not you, and the pantry's full. And three, if we're watchful and ready, that God entrusts more to us. But if we're flippant and lazy and unprepared, expect to see God's anger. And one of my favorite verses on stewardship is uh, 1 Peter 4.10. And it isn't just finances, it's our whole lives. And it, and it says this, Each of you should give whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In its various forms. He's going to trust some of you with time, others of you with great experience or passions or connections, some of you with finances, some of you with inheritance. But if we see ourselves as good and faithful stewards of all of these things in all areas of our lives, this is God's grace in various forms. So how important is stewardship in our lives? And I love this. Um, Pastor and the author of The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren, he said this, and this is huge. The two most important questions everyone will have to answer at the end of their life is, what did you do with my son and what did you do with what I gave you? He said, every human will have to answer those two questions. What did you do with my son? And what did you do with what I gave you? Life is stewardship. By the way, I don't know if you know this. We were talking about this in house church last week. Rick Warren, um, you know, the purpose-driven life. So you guys remember when that came out, it was kind of New York Times bestseller list. Not only was it New York Times number one bestseller, besides the Bible, it is the most published book in English ever printed in the history of publishing. That's huge. By the way, that's a lot of money. Here's the cool thing. Rick Warren lives in the same house that he and his wife bought when they were first married. He drives the same 14-year-old pickup truck that he had before everything got, everything blew up and he got lots of money. And he and his wife, Kay, have decided to do what's called reverse tithing. They give away 90% and they live on 10. Now, when you sell, besides the Bible, (laughs) the most published book in the history of publishing in English, and you give away 90%, that's pretty good stewardship. 
You know the temptations to go, well, I just give away 10. That's still a lot of money, right, God? And you know what? He could do that. He also then turned right back around and, you know, he started this large church, Saddleback. He's been there, what, 25 years or something. He went back and repaid his salary to the church for the last 25 years with interest. And he loves it when reporters say to him, oh, so, you know, you made a lot of money. What are you doing with your money? He said, I gave it all away. He said, well, I bet you must get paid a lot by the church. He said, I work for free. He's not bragging. He's just wanting people to know this is not mine. And when you ask him, why do you have that mindset? He said, okay, the the book I wrote, this is the most read book in English of any book besides the Bible. The first line is, life is not about you. He said, how in the world could I even begin to think that this was about me and this should be only about me when the first line of the book I wrote said, it is not about you. I'm really grateful for not just the quote, but his life. But that quote, I think, is very important for us to think through. Every one of us will be asked, what did you do with my son? And what did you do with what I gave you? So here's the challenge. I'm going to end here. Here's the challenge. I've shared this before, and I will will share this again. Um, I have no idea who gives what to this church. I see our budget and where we are monthly and yearly. I absolutely know that. A couple of our elders who are much more business-minded and financially-minded have eyes on that, and that's great. But I tell them, I don't want to know who our big givers are at our church are. I don't know if some of you have never given at Renew. I have no idea. If someone held a gun to my head, I could not tell you the answer. And I don't want to know that. Because when sometimes when I'm speaking on stuff like this, people come up to me and say, did, did you know? I'm like, no, I didn't know. So I'm a, I want you to take that as a sign that the Holy Spirit is stirring something in you if you're feeling challenged right now because I'm not writing or saying or teaching any of this to you specifically because of what you give or don't give to this church. I also think it's important for you to know a few things. Um, this is a little risky, but I think this is important. I want you to know this. Um, Megan and I spend less than we make and we're not in debt. And I really want you to know that. That's important because I can, with a good conscience, stand up here and say, I'm not wanting you to give so that you can help me and my family. Are we recipients of that? Of course we are. So is Doug and his family. But I want you to know that you can live below your means. That you can live without debt. Because the most important thing here at Renew, as I've said before, is not, we're not trying to raise funds. We're trying to raise givers. And the way you raise givers is by reminding them that we're lovers. And the way we're lovers is by remembering that he loved us first. And he says, the pantry's open. You're adopted. You're in my family. You never again have to be afraid because I'm in control. And the pantry's full, and I love you as my dad. That's what Jesus says to us. So here's my challenge to you with that long preface. I want to say this. Whatever you're giving, I want to encourage you to do what, this is called a a stairway challenge. I want you, whatever step you're on, maybe some of you have never given anything to renew, ever. 
I want to challenge you to just go up the first step and start giving something. Not because we need it, but as an act of faith, of trusting God that the pantry's full and you don't have to hoard anymore because he's our father that loves us and is in control of us. So if you've never given, I want to encourage you to step up one. If you've been giving a little bit, I want to encourage you to take the next step up on the stairway and give a little bit more than you have. Maybe where it actually, you feel the pinch. It hurts a little bit. And if you're giving, I want to encourage you to give a little bit more. Whatever step that you're on, even if you're on the floor and you haven't even started on the staircase yet, wherever you're at, I want to just encourage you to take one step up as an act of trust in this adopted dad that you have who takes you to the pantry and says, you don't have to worry. You can trust me. You can trust me. And maybe it's your way of saying, I'm not an owner. I'm a steward. I'm a steward. Here's what I'd like for us uh, to end. I'd like for you all to take out your cell phone, your keys, your wallet, your purse, your money, your credit cards. Don't worry. I'm not asking you to give it all to me, okay? I'm not asking you to put them in the joy boxes. I just want you to hold them in your hands, okay? Don't freak out. Your cell phone, your keys. You can hold your purse up if you want, your wallet, your pocketbook, whatever. I just want you to put it in your hands. Think for a moment what's currently in your hands. Your checkbook, your credit card, your wallet, your purse, your keys, which is your car, of course, your house, your apartment. Mostly what's in your hand represents either literally or symbolically just about everything that the Lord has entrusted to you of significant value. And here's how we're going to end the time. I'm going to shut up. Because what I say to you may be important, but more importantly, what Jesus may want to say to you is more important, which means I need to stop talking. So here's how we're going to end. I don't want you to close your eyes, partly because I'm, I don't want you to be afraid I'm going to come and take it away. Don't worry, Joel. I'm not going to take your stuff. But I actually want you to look at the things in your hands during prayer. And I want you to say, Lord, is there anything you want me to say about what I'm looking at? And then also allow the Lord to hear from you. If is there anything you need to say in your spirit to the Lord about what you're looking at? And I want you to just think, Lord, am I an owner or am I a steward? Acknowledge that to him. And see if there's anything your father with a full pantry has anything he wants to say to you. So we'll do that for a few moments and then I'll close this uh, in prayer. And in the quietness of your spirit, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord, God, with what you've entrusted to me, how am I doing with it? Lord, as we look at our phones, we think about the communication that happens through it. We even think of maybe the bills that we pay or the things that we purchase on Amazon or other places online. Or as we look at our keys, we think about the key rings of a car or maybe a few cars 
or a house or an apartment, maybe a storage shed that has other possessions in it that we own. We look at our wallet that has cash and credit cards in it, or a purse or a pocketbook that has a checkbook in it. Lord, it's really scary to think that uh, the idea that you show me your bank account and your credit card statements and your checkbook, and we can easily have someone show us whether we're owners or stewards. Lord, for those of us who are doing it well, I hope that we've heard in this time, well done. And maybe for those of us, we've heard that a change is needed. Lord, I pray that none of us in this room would give out of, out of duty or compulsion like one of the, uh, the circles being an obligated owner. I pray that we would be blue circle people of realizing that everything in our hands right now, and then some, doesn't belong to us. It belongs to you. No wonder you said in the passage we looked at, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lord, I pray that we would be the types of people that would have purses and pocketbooks and wallets that would not wear out. They would be invested on the things that would matter. Because we're your servants and you're the master and you've entrusted things to us and you've gone on a long journey. And when we return, you will ask, what have we done with what you entrusted to us? May we take that seriously. May this not be about dollars and cents, but may this be about faith and fear and greed and generosity and trust levels and love because that's the root of why you, Jesus, spoke so much about it. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.